Good morning, everybody. To take a minute and uh, remember the visualization. You're in the presence of all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. You're surrounded by all the sentient beings. And everybody is uh, delighted that you're going to listen to teachings on Shantideva's text and that they're delighted that you want to cultivate bodhicitta and the six perfections. So this is a good visualization to do when sometimes we need to feel support you know, when we, uh, our confidence is a little bit lacking, do this visualization, feel like the holy beings and all the sentient beings are really delighted in what you're doing and offering their support. So let's recall the situation that we're in and that all sentient beings are in. The situation of uncontrolled rebirth due to ignorance again and again taking a body and mind polluted by ignorance and its latencies and how serious a condition this is So we first have to wish ourselves to be free from samsara because thinking of our own dukkha and samsara brings a much stronger reaction initially than thinking about others. So to generate that aspiration for ourselves and then open the field and think of all other living beings, whether we like them or don't, whether they help us or harm us, and wish them to be free from dukkha and samsara. And with awareness, that freedom is internal, a mind free from ignorance, anger, and attachment, free from self-centeredness, aspire to bring that about for all living beings. And the way to do that 
is to become a fully awakened Buddha ourselves first. So generate that bodhicitta aspiration. So the question uh, came up last week. Somebody was uh, saying it's easier for them to have uh, to wish others to be free of samsara than to wish themselves to be free. Yeah, and uh, so easier to have compassion for others, and you know, not so much for oneself. That sounds very noble, but I know for myself when my mind thinks like that, it's because my situation right now, according to samsara, is pretty good. But the moment I step on a tack or somebody disturbs me, then my wish to liberate all others it is out the window, and my own small, tiny, insignificant suffering is foremost in my mind. Okay, so that's why they say we have to wish ourselves to be free of samsara first before we can wish everybody to be free of samsara. Okay. So we just look at our own minds and, you know, our love and compassion and, and bodhicitta is fine and well as long as our belly is full and people are polite to us and things are going well in samsara. We don't even realize, yeah, even the second and third kinds of dukkha in samsara, the dukkha of change and the, perva- the pervasive Dukkha of conditioning. We don't even realize those as things to be free of. Yeah. And so when we, and when we aren't in touch fully with what our own situation is, then it's so easy to feel compassion for other people because we don't realize their situation either. And we can see their, their dukkha of pain which we don't have at the moment, and have compassion for that. But like I said, as soon as you know we have one small bit of suffering, all our compassion for others is forgotten, and the focus is completely on ourselves. And that's only for the first type of dukkha. You know, we don't even wish ourselves to be free of the second, third type. So how can we reasonably, in the depth of our heart, want that for others, okay? So there's a a progression here that we have to go by. So it's not selfish, you know, when you're a beginner to think about your own dukkha and want yourself to be free. It becomes selfish if you only think about your own dukkha 
and only wish yourself to be free. Okay? But it's still, even though that that motivation has a subtle type of self-centeredness, it's still a dharma motivation because you want to get yourself out of samsara and that's something good. Yeah. But then at that point you try and broaden it to encompass everybody else too. So then, uh, last week I said I wanted to talk some more about mindfulness and introspective awareness. So yesterday I um, spoke to a class at the University of British Columbia in Okanagan. I pronounced it properly. And uh, it was a graduate uh, seminar and they were talking about, uh, you know, mindfulness. So I, I'm, I'm not going to repeat it here. There was just a few things that I didn't say there that pertain here, as well as you know what I wanted to say for our class too. But uh, we'll post it and you can listen to it because I talked about the differences um, in the motivation between Buddhist mindfulness and secular mindfulness, the difference in context, the difference in. Um, what else? The, the method that you use, what you're trying to actualize, and so on. And as, as well as the difference in, I don't want to call it technique, but, uh, you know, the, how you apply mindfulness, you know. And also, what I didn't mention, which should be added, is the meaning of mindfulness. There's a, a difference, you know, uh, between what it means in Buddhism and what it means in secular. I touched on it a bit yesterday, but I didn't uh, make it real explicit. So in, in Buddhism, mindfulness is a mental factor that focuses on a virtuous object. Yeah, it sometimes can be neutral, but it's usually the definition that talks about a virtuous object and is able to keep the mind focused on that object and not forget it. So that mind is, it has to be a familiar object. Yeah, you have to know the object. Then you have to keep your mind on that object. And it functions to prevent distraction to other objects, okay? So this is um, found both in when you're practicing ethical conduct and you're practicing concentration, okay? So it really permeates, you know, all aspects of our life here, okay? So um, in, in concentration, well, what it, well, okay, in, in ethical conduct, let's start with that, okay? So it, uh, mindfulness is the same word as memory or remember. So it has to do with remembering something. So in terms of ethical conduct, we're remembering our precepts. We're remembering our values and the principles we want to live by. And when we remember those, 
then we can act according to them. When we forget our precepts, then we become careless, we become negligent, we sometimes don't even realize that we're breaking precepts. When we don't reflect on what our values are, what kind of human being we, we want to be, then we get pulled this way and that by objects of attachment that come into our mind. And we don't remember our values and precepts. Our memory of them is gone. Our mindfulness is gone. We're not holding them in our mind. So they're not using, we're not using them to, uh, how to say, to frame or to support our, our day-to-day life living in an ethical manner. Okay. Introspective awareness, okay, samprajana, which is sometimes translated as mental alertness, vigilance. It has many different, um, you know, translations. In 37 practices, which we chant, it's mental alertness, okay? So what this one does, yeah, introspective awareness, is it is like a little spy that watches where your attention is, where your mindfulness is, and what are you doing, yeah? So it's a little corner of your mind that kind of investigates, okay, I'm talking, you know, is what I'm saying in accord with my values? Is what I'm saying in accord with my precepts? Yeah. How is my body moving now? Yeah. How are my physical movements and gestures affecting other people? Am I aware of the other people in my surroundings and how my movements may affect them? Okay. So it's that mind that kind of checks up to see if you're still mindful or if you've gotten distracted. Yeah, I read uh, one story yesterday. This is a very good example of it. There was um, one of the big football players. He's six five, weighs three hundred pounds. Okay, so he was working out in a park, and he heard a woman screaming. So he went to investigate, and he, she was being attacked by a man in broad daylight in the middle of the park. So he ran over there to help, but he said he realized that he was a very big person and that people can sometimes really get very scared, especially if he's coming quickly at them. So he he ran over there with that awareness. He didn't want to freak everybody out, but he came and he separated. He dragged the man off, sat him down, took... Uh, another man came along who who kept the man there until the cops arrived, and then he took, led the woman, you know, a little ways away, and and helped her calm down because she was pretty, you know, yeah. But he was mindful of his size and the effect that that had on people. Yeah. So, you know, it's that. It, it, we say he was mindful. Actually, he had introspective awareness. Yeah, he was mindful of not wanting to 
scare anybody, but he had the introspective awareness to be aware of how he was moving so that on his way going over there, nobody got frightened except the guy who was doing the attack. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that, that's a, a good example of how there was mindfulness of how he wanted to be and introspective awareness, seeing that he was that way. Okay. Then, of course, the, the police department declared him a hero, and him and the other guy heroes, and he said, I'm not a hero. I was just doing what any person should do when somebody needs help. Yeah. So, uh, okay, so that's a, an example of how the two are used in our ethical conduct. When it comes to develop serenity, yeah, then mindfulness focuses on the object of our, of, uh, that we're trying to develop concentration on. Okay. So again, it has to be a familiar object. So if you're using the Buddha as your meditation object, you would look at a, a statue, at a painting, some image of the Buddha to remember how he looks, the expression on his face, his hand gestures, and so on. So it's a familiar object. Then you lower your eyes and you bring that image to mind in your mental consciousness. Because when you develop serenity, it's a mental object. You don't develop serenity by staring at a candle or staring at a flower, because that's your visual consciousness. Okay, so this is, a, it has to be your mental consciousness developing concentration. Okay, so it remembers the object of concentration and functions to keep your mind there, yeah, so that you're not remembering, uh, you know, that uh, what's for lunch or what somebody did yesterday that bugged you or, you know, this is some other kind of thing. You're focused on your object of meditation. And then there... Um, the samprajana, the introspective awareness, is one corner of your mind that looks and, you know, am I still on the image of the Buddha? I placed my mind there. Sometimes my I place my mind and then the next moment my mind's off, okay, on some other object. So it comes up from time to time to see if you're still on the object. And if you're not, then... It, it, uh, rings the, uh, the alarm of, okay, antidote needed to, uh, apply that so that you bring your, your mindfulness, renew your mindfulness back on your object of meditation. Okay. So that's how the two, these two, mindfulness, introspective awareness, they're very close and they function together in, in, you know, most situations. And, uh, yeah, so there are two things that we really want to develop. Yeah, not only in our meditation practice, but in our daily life. Yeah, with ethical conduct. And here you can see because when we develop mindfulness and introspective awareness regarding our verbal and physical activities, 
and we keep ethical conduct that way, then we are strengthening those two mental factors. So when we do our meditation, they are stronger and they they function. So that's one reason when we list the three higher trainings, ethical conduct, concentration, wisdom, why ethical conduct comes before concentration and before wisdom, because it helps to develop those two mental factors. Okay, But of course, in our daily life, it's not just, uh, you know, the awareness of uh, what we're speaking and what we're doing, because everything depends on the mind, which is what we're going to get into today, you know, everything depending on the mind. So we have to make sure in our minds we're, we're holding virtuous objects. Yeah. So it's... Uh, you know, it's helpful during the day to check in. And am I in la-la land imagining some beautiful something that I want? Or am I in, you know, regret land thinking of something in the past that I did that I don't feel so good about? Or am I strolling down memory lane thinking of all these people I knew in high school and wondering what they are doing now and should I try and find them on the internet and say hello you know when you see that then just to stop and you know okay is this a good object for me to focus my mind on right now yeah what what kind, what does focusing on this in my mind do yeah and we'll see many times what we're focused on is a total waste of time yeah. In fact, I was thinking that some of the things that uh, we get really upset about, the event itself was very short, but the time we spend ruminating on it and getting upset about it can be very long. Okay? So, like, Somebody, uh, you know, we're meditating or something, and someone comes through the building and, uh, and the door slams behind them. Okay, how long does it take for a door to slam? Maybe, I don't know, three seconds the sound lasts? One second? Okay. Yeah, so the initial thing is one, one to three seconds. Then we think... They slam the door. Don't they realize that I'm meditating? Yeah. Or somebody's walking upstairs and you're in one of the bedrooms downstairs trying to sleep. Yeah. And some somebody is coming. They came to get a cup of co- uh, coffee. <laughs> they, came, <laughs> they came to get a cup of tea, you know. And so they're walking across the room. How long does it take for them to get from here to the tea counter, you know, from the door to the tea counter? Maybe six, seven seconds, yeah? Yeah? Oh, you know, you've timed yourself. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So the, the actual noise, you know, lasts just a few seconds. But then we go into... I'm trying to sleep. Don't they realize I'm trying to sleep? Or they slam the door. Don't they realize I'm trying to meditate? 
Well, clearly they didn't, because I don't think anybody would deliberately make noise with the intention to disturb you. Okay. But that we don't care whether they did it deliberately or not. You know, we're still mad at them. Yeah. It's like, that happens every day. I'm sleeping, and they walk across that room every day. I'm meditating. They slam that door every day. This goes on and on. Even I've asked them to close the door softly. Even I've asked them not to walk like this on the floor because you can hear it. Yeah, who walks like this on the floor? <laughs> it, when you're downstairs, it may sound like they are, but who upstairs is walking like that? <laughs> oh, really? Okay, you video it. I, I want to hear the person upstairs deliberately. I mean, it takes energy to go like this. If you're just walking regularly, it doesn't make that sound. Downstairs, when you're trying to sleep, you are super sensitive to everything. And it sounds like they are deliberately can like kangaroos jumping up and down across the floor. But I don't really think that people are doing that. In any case, that doesn't stop us from getting mad at them. Okay. And so we get mad. And how long do we get mad? The one to three seconds for the noise of the door slamming? The seven seconds for them walking across the room? No. Yeah. We spend many meditation sessions ruminating on this. We're here in an abbey and these people are so inconsiderate. And I'm so distracted now. That door slamming totally took me off my object to meditation. And it's their fault I can't concentrate. And when am I going to be able to go somewhere where it's really absolutely quiet so I can develop serenity? Oh, there's that can Everywhere I go, there's noise. The birds chirp. <laughs> yeah, the wind blows. The leaves fall down. Everywhere I go, there's noise. Yeah, I'm walking a, a you know, it's not only people walking across this room when I'm trying to sleep. Yeah, it's my, my roommate breathes and they breathe so loud. They're going, <gasps> and that's not even when they snore. You should hear them when they snore. And no wonder I can't sleep. These people, there's so much noise. Even I go in another room, I can hear them breathe through the wall. When they constructed this building, why didn't they make concrete walls that no noise goes through? You know? Well, they said it was because it was too expensive, but I don't think it's too expensive because my happiness is more important. Yeah? And they needed concrete floors and concrete walls. And I know then I'll complain that it's too cold because it's concrete, but at least it'll be quiet. But then I'll hear them shivering. <laughs> oh, no! And I still won't be able to sleep. <laughs> okay. Now, how much time have we spent getting angry 
and off our object of meditation over the initial thing that happened that took just a few seconds. Yeah? Isn't this amazing how our mind works? Yeah? So, you know, it's like when you think about the Buddha, it brings you so, you know, when that the Buddha's in your mind and your focus, it really makes your mind peaceful. When you think about all these people who are conspiring against you to deliberately make you an insomniac who can't concentrate, yeah, that object of meditation, clear visualization, you know, we don't get distracted. There's no laxity in the mind. We don't fall asleep. We're not thinking about lunch. We are single-pointedly focused on the object of our irritation and anger. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah? So, you know, when you look at it, then we're all a little bit crazy, aren't we? Yeah? We think, oh, yeah, I'm normal. I'm, you know, well, I have my head screwed on properly. But when you look at what we use our mind for, it's really like, you know, we're, we're nuts. So when I see that, it renews my faith in the Buddha. Because the Buddha clearly knew what he was talking about when he talked about our minds and why we circle round and around in samsara. Okay? So then I renew my faith in the Buddha, then I try and go back to my object of meditation. But then the memory of that person stomping across the floor comes off. They're, they're no longer even stomping across the floor. They're busy. They're now meditating. But, you know, but we're remembering it, and that comes up. So they're nowhere around. But that doesn't stop us from getting angry again. Yeah? So we get angry again. And then... We don't just stop at being angry at, you know, one person stomping. It's the whole world, you know. Again, we're mad at the, the butterflies for flapping their wings because it makes noise. We're mad at the leaves. We're mad at the deer. The turkeys. Oh, my God. It's turkeys in springtime. <sighs> you know. And... And we go on, and then pretty soon we're mad at the entire world. Yeah? And where does that get us? You know? It just, we make ourselves miserable. Mm -hmm. I find that uh, there's a story behind the anger or the whatever, mm -hmm. and I'm assu assuming motivations of the other people. That's so I have to say, what is that need, that tender need that's being triggered? What is the button? Yeah. Because I guess it's not just the thing itself. It's like, oh, they need to hurt me. Yeah. Now, and I'm it, always picked on. And what's I'm the this. button? It's the self-centered thought. Yeah. I am most important. M silence during my meditation, even though I'm usually distracted anyway, you know, silence when I'm trying to sleep. 
This is the most important thing in the universe. Yeah, that's what our mind is focused on. We forget that in a previous life, we probably were very inconsiderate of other people. And we were the ones who walked across the floor like this. And we were the ones who got mad and deliberately slammed the door to disturb somebody else. We forget that we're experiencing the result of our own actions. So instead, we torment ourselves by getting angry at other people. Because the self-centered uh, thought is waving its big flag, saying, I'm most important. Isn't it? Yeah. So there you see very clearly the disadvantages of the self-centered thought. So when you see that, don't beat yourself up for being self-centered. Think this is the disadvantage of the self-centered thought, and this is why I want to oppose it. So all this pain that I'm experiencing now, I'm giving it to the self-centered thought. I'm imagining right now the self-centered thought. It's out there. It's not who I am. It's not here. I imagine it out there. I'm giving all that pain to the self-centered thought because it's the thing that really drives me nuts. You know, that's the real enemy. That and its cohort, you know, the self-grasping ignorance. So let them suffer. Yeah. You give the pain to them. And then you come back and you think, you know, I'm in the presence of the Buddhas. The sentient beings are surrounding me. They're very happy that I'm doing this meditation. And I'll just do the best I can. Yeah. And then it's over. Yeah. Of course, the next morning... <laughs> You know, they're, ble they're breathing. The turkeys are at it again. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Those turkeys in the springtime, they're really, really too much, aren't they? You know? They think they're peacocks. Yeah, they're strutting around with their feathers spread out. Look how gorgeous I am. You know, the turkeys are not beautiful like peacocks. But they think they are. Look at my, I'm spreading my feathers. Yeah. So, and the, the, the girl turkeys, you know, what do they do? Who are you? You know, I mean, they completely ignore the guys. And they're strutting around, pecking at each other. And the girls are, you know, finally getting something to eat. <laughs> Amazing. And then we wonder, how are we different than turkeys? Yeah. Turkeys. How do they what's 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 behind what the turkeys are doing? I want happiness and I don't want suffering. That's what's behind them. What's behind everything we do? I want happiness, I don't want to suffer. All these other sentient beings who are driving us crazy, what's behind what they're doing? They just want to be happy, they don't want to suffer. 
we're all alike. So regarding putting the self-centered attitude outside of me or any afflictions, something that I felt was that I almost felt like I was disappearing. It's like, if I'm not self-centered, if I'm not critical, who am I? You know, it's almost like there's the attachment to it because it makes me feel like me, even though I know it's harmful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the self-centered thought, it feels like it's me and it feels like it's our protector. Yeah. Because we say, if I don't look out for my own happiness, nobody else's self-centeredness is helping me look out for my own happiness. If I give that up, I'm going to become a doormat. And then the whole community together in the morning is going to stomp across the floor because I let them do it. My, I give up my self-centeredness so then they take advantage and they all will slam the door one right after the other deliberately to bother me. And they'll all stomp across the floor when I'm trying to sleep. Yeah, that's what self-centeredness tells us. So that's when we need to say, is that true? Is that what's really going to ha- happen? If I give the pain to the self-centeredness, if I realize that my self-centeredness is not who I am, that it's not an inherent product, uh, um, part of me, is that really going to happen? No, it's not going to happen. And actually, if I gave up this self-centeredness, I'd probably be very happy, at least happier than I am now. Because my self-centeredness makes me so prickly. Yeah? Do you see days when you're very prickly? Yeah? Every small thing drives you crazy. You know, someone left the honey spoon in without cleaning it off on the counter. You know, we get infuriated. So our mind is a very strange thing, (laughs) isn't it? It's a very strange thing how it operates. So this is why we need to be conscientious and why we need to guard alertness. Chapters 4 and 5 of Shantideva's text, you know, because we need to see what's going on in the mind and rein it in when the mind is, you know, doing something really harmful and destructive. Okay, so just to review, um, verse 6 of chapter 5, the perfect teacher himself has shown that in this way all fears as well as all boundless miseries, originate from the mind. So last time I talked about two ways they originate from the mind. What are they? Okay. One is karma, because our mind motivated negative actions in in a previous time that left the seeds of those negative actions on our mind stream. And that's ripening now in an uncomfortable 
unpleasant situation. And what's the second way our mind creates our experience? Yeah, the afflicted mental states that arrive that arise right now, like the one that gets infuriated when somebody's walking across the floor. Okay, that is, we're making uh, ourselves miserable right then and there by getting angry at it, at that person. And the karma that we created in the past is ripening in our having to hear that sound. Whereas we could hear the sound and say, I'm so glad my friends are alive. Yeah, they're walking across the floor to get a cup of tea. I hope that they enjoy their cup of tea. I'm so glad my friends are alive. Why not think that? Yeah, it's just a simple change of thought. And if we think like that, then the next moment we can clearly go back to our meditation. Yeah. So I'm not reading consistently out of this text because I, I like the translations here better. Somehow, I don't know, it just affects my heart more. Okay, so here's some other quotations. So the Buddha said, one's experiences of dangers and sufferings are created by, my own, by one's own mind. The reason is that all dangers and the boundless suffering of this life and future lives arise from one's own negative mind. And then he said in the Sutra of the Cloud of Jewels, if one controls one's mind, one controls all phenomena. Yeah. In the sense, it doesn't mean that you can make everything do what you want it to do, but what it means is you're able to control your reactions to to things so that you... Uh, Keep your mind happy and you keep your mind in virtue. Okay. Then the next next two verses are about the reason uh, why, you know, the mind is responsible. So verse 7. Who intentionally created all the weapons for those in hell? Who created the burning iron ground? From where did all the women in hell ensue? The Mighty One has said that all such things are the workings of a negative mind. Hence, within the three world spheres, there is nothing to fear other than my mind. Okay. So, who intentionally created all those weapons in hell? You know, and who created the burning iron ground? Who created the women? In hell, the idea here is that it's geared to it's sp- spoken to a male audience. The women in hell are attractive women. You're born in hell, and you're attracted to these women, so you follow them everywhere. And in the meantime, you're getting burned following them. Okay, the fo- chasing after them is causing you more suffering. So when it sev- says women, it means whoever you are sexually attached to or attracted to, you know, and you follow them around in the hell realms 
you know, the trees with that the leaves are, are blades and you climb up the tree to get to them because they're singing at the top of the tree. And then as soon as you get there, you hear them down on the ground. So you climb down and the leaves that are knives are, are slashing you the whole time. Okay. So who created all of this? Yeah. So is there an external creator? Is there a, a God? Either like the Judeo-Christian idea of God or the Hindu Ishvara. Is there an external being who created the hell realm and all the things in the hell realm? Okay. That would be difficult to assert. Okay. First of all, because why would, if there were a creator who was compassionate, supposedly, why would they create realms of suffering? What's the reason for it? Yeah? Why would somebody create suffering realms and then send people there to suffer? Yeah? doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And if the creator, sometimes the creator is asserted to be permanent, they don't change. If the creator is permanent, how do they create? Because creation always involves change. Whenever something new arises, whenever something is produced, what existed before has changed. Okay. But if a creator is permanent, that means they never change. So how, they, how can they create? Yes, you have an idea. Okay, go for it. Yeah, I've, I've struggled with this one a lot. I try to think it through. But... I don't think I, my mind naturally gets to the conclusion that I'm supposed to, and that's probably just karmic obscuration. But like the qualities of our mind, are those permanent phenomena? Like the quality of clarity? No, no. All those things are changing. The quality itself. Yes. Because the quality of, of clarity, you know, changing doesn't mean that it totally ceases and goes out of existence. Changing means from one moment to the next. The quality of clarity in your mind is what enables you to perceive phenomena. Is that, and your mind, every single split second, is perceiving something else. So that quality of clarity changes. The quality of clarity is eternal in the mind. It never goes totally out of existence, but from one moment to the next, it has to change. Otherwise, you could not perceive different objects. Okay? So there's a difference between impermanence, something being impermanent, and something being eternal. Eternal means it never goes out of existence. Impermanent means it changes moment by moment. 
Some impermanent things go out of existence. The table's going to break. That the table goes out of existence. But meanwhile, why the table exists, each moment of the table is different than the previous moment. Let's use the example of uncompounded space again. Uncompounded space is a permanent phenomenon. Right. In the Buddhist worldview, didn't the air element arise out of the uncompounded space and then so on and so uh, on? The uncompounded space was not the cause of the air element. Okay. It arose within that. Okay. How does that differ from creation arising within God? Well, is there, because it said that God created the world. Uncompounded space does not create what exists in it. There's uncompounded space right where the thermos is. If there weren't the absence of tangibility and obstructibility in this area, the thermos could not be in that area. Okay, so that quality of of lack of obstructibility doesn't change. But it does not act, it did not cause the thermos. What caused the thermos is, I don't know, the metal and whatever else the thermos is made out of, and all the people who who put it together, those were the cause of the thermos. There's a... a more effort that needs to go into differentiating something that arises from something and something that's created by something. Well, Because we are agreeing, yeah. I think, that the air, quote-unquote, I don't know if this is a good example, but the air element arises out of the uncompounded it, it, space. It arises within space. Okay, there's the empty space. That enab- And it isn't like the the thermos went poof and came out of you know, the empty space. Other people created it. It's a, it was a whole creation process. But right now where it's sitting, there's a lack of obstructibility that enables the thermos to occupy that space. Okay. Keep pondering. Okay, so there can't be an external creator that created the hell realms, yeah? So where did it all come from? Verse 8 says, the mighty one, the Buddha, has said that all such things are the working of a negative mind, okay? Because sentient beings experience suffering in that environment, the mind was the creator of that suffering. We don't say that the mind said, let's make a hell realm, and then the mind put all the atoms and molecules together to make the hell realm. No, the, the, the physical production of the world or the hell realms or whatever it is, that's a system of causality that depends on material things. Okay, so we go back to the the um, elemental chart. We go back to the people who made things. Yeah, all of that is a system 
of physical causality. But what made me born there, what made me suffer in there, that was due to my mind. Okay, so even though it says, you know, it sounds like it's the mind that is going poof and getting all the atoms and molecules together to create the world, that's not it. You know, there's many systems of causality, but it's the mind that puts me in that world that makes me experience happiness or suffering in that world. Uh, so hence, the three world spheres, so there it's talking about the, the three realms of existence, the desire realm, the form realm, and the formless realm. Okay. There is nothing to fear other than my mind. So again, the word fear, then we go, oh, I'm so afraid of my mind. I'm going to have a negative thought. This is terrible. No, that's not what it means. It means, you know, that my mind through, when it has non-virtuous thoughts, creates the cause for me to be in situations where I experience suffering. Yeah. So since that is the major cause of my experiences of pain, I need to be aware of what the mind is involved in and what it's doing. Because my mind is creating my future. Okay? So if I care about my own happiness in the future, I need to care about what my mind is doing right now. But then we get all tied up. But, okay, if I, you know, I, I've got uh, to have a big savings account for the future. I've got to save for old age, you know? Because, uh, you know, I mean, you told me, you just told me to plan for the future and do what I need to do to protect myself in the future. So I need, uh, you know, at least $5 million in my retirement account so that I'm secure for the future. But how long will $5 million last? Yeah, because I have to buy a house. And then, you know, maybe they'll put, you know, I'll have to go in a nursing home. I don't want to do that. So I, I want to stay in my own house. So I have to buy a house. Then I have to have 24-hour care. Yeah. And that's at how much an hour? At least $25 an hour. 24, so that's how much a day, how much a month, how much a year. And then I have to pay, uh, you know, all my medical bills too, yeah, because Medicare doesn't cover everything. And did you know Medicare does not cover glasses and hearing aids, which are two of the most important things for elder people to have that keeps them in touch with the world and keeps them alive? Medicare does not cover. So I have to have enough, yeah, for my glasses, my hearing aids. Glasses aren't so expensive. Hearing aids, they bilk you for the hearing aids, you know. And then your hearing changes, so you have to ha keep having the hearing uh, test again, and it, it, you alter the hearing aids. But then they improve the hearing aids, but every time they... They improve it. Then you want the best computer chip in your hearing aid. And that costs you another $5,000. 
Yeah, so every time they improve it, I mean, why do they keep improving it and making me pay $5,000 more each time? Yeah, why don't they just stop improving these things? Then I don't have to buy them. <laughs> so, yeah, and so I need that. Then I need nice clothes, because I will have visitors when I'm sick. You know, even if I'm bedridden, I need a nice pajamas. No, I can't have pajamas. I need a nightgown and a nice embroidered robe because maybe I'll get up out of bed when people come to see me. And then I need teacups for all the guests. And I need a huge flat screen TV. Yeah. Clear across the room. Yeah. So I can play Dharma videos. Yeah. Yeah. They're going to have them on Netflix. Yeah, I'm sure. Don't you think? But by that time, they'll have Dharma videos on Netflix. Oh, they have? Oh, you know. Yeah, you're preparing for old age. <laughs> so, um, yeah. And so when are you ever going to have enough money for your old age? Because five million, okay, you don't know when you're going to get incapacitated. Yeah, it might happen tomorrow, but it may not happen for another 40 years. And then once you're, you know, you have to stay at home and have your whole things, your whole spread at home, how long are you going to be in that situation? You don't know how long you're going to live either. So what happens if you save millions of dollars and then you have a really long life and you run out of money in your retirement account? What are you going to do? Then you're going to have to sell your house, yeah, get one of those shopping carts from the grocery store and become a bag lady on the streets. What suffering? Yeah. Maybe I can take a folding mattress and a sleeping bag with me, so at least I have some comfort when I'm sleeping on Skid Row. And I won't drink with the other people on Skid Row. Yeah, I'll keep my precepts. You know, I mean, when do you ever have enough money? Yeah? Do you know anybody? Does anybody you know have enough money? You know somebody who has who has enough money? Oh, billionaires don't have enough money. I think every billionaire is different, but there are some people who believe they do have enough money. But wait until they get sick, then they don't believe they have enough money. And if they really believe they have enough money. Why do they keep making more? Why don't they give some of their money away? <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, we hit a wall there. <laughs> oh, the mi it's the microphone that this doesn't work. Okay, there are actually a lot of billionaires who signed the giving pledge, which yeah. is something Warren Buffett started, which is about like giving majority of over ninety to ninety-five percent of their 
money to char- charities yes. within their lifetime. So yeah, within their them. lifetime. So they're going to have the billions now, and then the day before they die, they're going to give it away, whatever they haven't spent. So they'll keep their pledge to give it away in their lifetime, but they're not going to start div- giving away their their billions tomorrow, you know. <laughs> oh, yes, I am making a general statement, but I think you're getting the point, you know, and look at your own mind, you know, you pledge, I'm going to give it all away before I die, but you keep it until the day before you die, you know, why is Nagarjuna talking to the king, you know, when you read um, Precious Garland, yeah, the king is young and healthy, and he's telling the king, Give your stuff away before you die. Use it to create merit. Because if if you wait until just before you die, you won't have the opportunity. Or even if you do, all your ministers are going to take it because <laughs> you're dying and you won't be able to protect it. Yeah. And your ministers are going to use it for themselves or to curry favor for the, with the next king. So you're going to be left without merit and without money. Okay. So, I mean, Nagarjuna goes into a whole big spiel about this because he knows how people's minds work. Yeah. Nobody ever feels financially secure for the rest of their life, no matter how much more you make. Okay. Okay. So how did we get off on that? Anyway, so there's nothing to fear in this case, you know, with the example, but your stingy mind. Yeah. The stingy mind that says, I got to hold on to things. Yeah. I just received an email from somebody yesterday who um, was saying, you know, they were talking about giving, and they said, it feels so good to give. And she said that, you know, she gave her a stimulus check away. Yeah. And I know many of the nuns here did, too, you know, and some nuns kind of kept it for themselves. But um, <laughs> but anyway, it's your choice. It's your stimulus check. Actually, it's due to the kindness of the taxpayers. Yeah. So... um but anyway, you know, she was saying how good it feels to be able to give. Yeah. But when we're always worried about, well, I have enough, then we miss out on that feeling good about giving. Or we give, but in the back of our mind, it's like, did I make a mistake by giving that much? Maybe I should have only given half of that amount. Because what happens if the cost of glasses go up? And I don't have enough money, you know, for the new fancy glasses. Yeah, whatever it is. I mean, just look at I don't know. Yeah? Does your mind operate like that? Yeah. When I lived in Dharamsala, I mean, I, I was very poor when I lived in India. And I didn't even have enough for a ticket back here. But when I went grocery shopping, and I walked 
uh, down to the market, and I passed the beggars, you know, uh, that lived in the community. Uh, it was hard for me to give them 25 pace. At that time, 25 pace was the cup of uh, cost of a cup of tea. Approximately four pennies. And it was like, it was very hard for me to give that away because I don't have very much money. I don't have a source of income. How can I give them a cup of tea? Because I may want that cup of tea later on. And this, when I was walking down to the market, after listening to Geshe Nawandarge teach the Dharma about the perfection of generosity and about not being stingy and caring more about others than oneself, and saying, I love the Dharma. I'm so inspired by this vision of the Dharma. And then push comes to shove, I can't give somebody a cup of tea. Because I'm afraid of what's going to happen to me in the future. Not what is happening to that person right now, the other person right now. Okay? So then, you know, I had to get from there to, um, you know, to a state of civil war in my own mind to convince myself to separate from, you know, 25 pesa, one little coin like this that, here was worth nothing, you know. They don't accept Indian money. <laughs> yeah? It's not, it wasn't even one rupee. It was a quarter of a rupee. Okay? But in those days, it was like eight rupees for the dollar. Now it's, you know, much more. Anyway, you know, then civil war, you know, to talk myself into giving. And then the doubt afterwards, oh, I gave, but maybe, maybe, maybe. And then after tormenting myself, you know, practicing generosity should be joyful. For me, it was torment. (laughs) Yeah. Then after tormenting myself over this, I decided, oh, that's good. I finally was generous. Oh, that's good. Gave myself a pat on the back to encourage myself for next time. Yeah. So this even preceded the maroon sweater event. Yeah. (laughs) Which is another story I won't bore you with right now. Okay, so our suffering depends on our, our mental state. Yeah. Now, it's not just our suffering that depends on our mental state. It's also our happiness. And it's also the meaning of fulfilling the six perfections. So now he goes into this whole section about how fulfilling each of the perfections is about generating a particular mental state. It's not about changing the external environment as much as you would like to change the external environment. So he starts out with the perfection of generosity. Verse 9. If the perfection of generosity were the alleviation of the world's poverty, since uh, then, since beings are still starving now 
in what manner did the previous Buddhas perfect it? Because we hear the Buddhas completed the six perfections, but and, the, and generosity is the first one, but people in the world are still hungry. So if the Buddha had perfected generosity, how come these people are still hungry? Okay. So can the Buddha redistribute all the food in the world just by his own thought? No. Okay. Can the Buddha control other people to make them di- equally distribute the, fo- the food in the world? Because there's enough for everybody. It's just, it's not distributed properly. Can the Buddha control anybody else's mind and make them do that? No. Then how in the world did he perfect the practice of generosity? Okay. Okay, the, pre- the verse 10 says, the perfection of generosity is said to be the thought to give all beings everything, together with the fruit of such thought. Hence, it is simply a state of mind. Okay, so what is the perfection of generosity? It's not being able yourself physically to give everybody everything they want or need. That's impossible. Okay, because we cannot control the external environment. Yeah. But it's the thought to give everything to others. So here what you're giving is you're giving not only what you belong, what what belongs to you, but you're giving the whole world everything that you could potentially possess in the future. Okay, so that's what we do when we do the mandala offering. We imagine the universe and everything in it. And here we're giving it to the Buddha, but why do we give it to the Buddha? And how's the Buddha going to use it? He's going to use the universe to benefit sentient beings. So we offer the mandala to the Buddha, then we use the things that we've offered because the Buddha allows us to do it. But we have to use them to benefit sentient beings, because that's the Buddha's purpose. So it's not we offer the universe to the Buddha, the Buddha gives it us back, and then we go to 31 flavors and buy an ice cream cone with all 31 flavors. Okay? So it's the thought to give everything away, together with the fruit of such thought. So we make somebody happy, we create good karma. Yeah, it's the result of that. Hence, the perfection of generosity is a state of mind. Now, that doesn't mean that if it's just a state of mind that we never physically give anything. Okay, so there's the story of, I've probably told this before, of Uh, the Lama who was giving an empowerment, and when he gave the empowerment, he's always saying, you imagine this and you imagine that way. When you do the mandala offering to request the empowerment, you imagine the entire world and everything in it, and you offer that. And then you imagine, you know, blissful wisdom, nectar filling your body, and you imagine this and that. Okay, so he he gave the empowerment without telling the 
the students to imagine all these beautiful things and, and so on. And then afterwards, it, the custom is that the students come up and make offering, you know, in gratitude. So the people before the old man, they're offering this, that, and the other thing. And, um, and the old man, he had a brick of Tibetan tea, yeah? And uh, he got up to the lama and he said, well, I was going to offer this to you, but since you, uh, you know, told me to just visualize all these beautiful things that I offered to you, or that I offered to the Buddha, and, and you gave me all this wisdom nectar that is just visualized. So I'm just going to imagine uh, giving you this, this brick of Tibetan tea. <laughs> okay. So it doesn't mean that uh, you know, when you have something and you're capable of giving, you don't give. You just imagine giving, okay? When you're capable of giving, it's good to give. But you give according to what is reasonable and according to what you can, uh, you know, in your own heart feel good about giving because you don't want to regret the generosity later on. Yeah, being generous and then afterwards thinking, oh, no, I should not have given that away. Then that is destroying your merit. Okay, so, so the perfection of generosity is a state of mind. But we do give. Yeah. Uh, one time I was with uh, Kenser Jampa Tekchuk, and he... Uh, I, uh, one of my friends, I was traveling with a friend who was uh, Indian, and so we we went there. And Kenza Rinpoche, his incredible Lama, you know, really amazing. And uh, so he in invited us for dinner. So there was my friend Karen and me, and the the monk Steve, you know, he was the translator, also a close student of Rinpoche's, and. Um, he invited us for dinner. He sat us on chairs, and he sat on the floor. This is the abbot of Sarah J. Monastery. Okay. And we protested, but he would not hear of it otherwise. Okay. And he made this, this very lovely dinner, and, and he cooked it himself, you know, and gave it to us. And while we're eating dinner, a beggar comes you know, and, and knocks on the door. Well, the door was open, so the beggar just kind of looked in and called in. And Kenza Rinpoche, um, uh, you know, stood up, and then he, he went outside, you know, to greet the beggar. And then he disappeared in, into another room, and he came out with one of those uh, really nice, um, soft Indian blankets, you know, the ones I'm talking talking about, they're fleece, yeah, and they're really soft and cuddly. And he, he took out this new fleece blanket and gave it to the beggar, who then, you know, went off. And we're, we're watching this from inside the room. And, you know, the beggar just shows up. I need a blanket. She gave it to him. That was it. He came down, sat down. We continued our dinner. My friend Karen was totally blown away, you know? And um, it made such a strong impression on her. And I was thinking, this is, you know, how bodhisattvas benefit, 
you know. So he was benefiting the beggar, but he was also benefiting Karen. And then her, how much she spoke about, how much she was impacted by it, and that benefited me. Yeah, so there's kind of this ripple effect, effect that that comes about. Yeah. So, yeah. But just, you know, one small thing. And for him, it's like, you know, one blanket, give it away, you know, another blanket comes. So, <laughs> and he give, gave away the new one. He didn't take the old one, you know, from the floor or something like that and, and give it, he gave a new one. So that, you know, so, so you see all these years later, I remember that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we have time for a few questions. I'm always slightly confused. You mentioned that when we um, use concentration, we're focusing on an object in the mind, with the mind. Mm-hmm. But then with breathing, we're using our tactile consciousness. Yeah. So it's this gray area. Okay. The way it's described in, in the Pali tradition, you start out with breathing, but the real object that is is the nimitta, where, which is a subtle sign that appears to the mental consciousness when the mind is concentrated. And it's like a little uh, thing of light or something that appears to the mental consciousness. That is the real object that that you're that you're aiming for, not just the fit. You start out with the physical sensation and that leads to deeper concentration, which leads to the namita appearing. How do you gauge if you're giving enough temporal support to others, even if in your mind you have the thought to give everything? How can you, how do you know if you're giving enough if even in your mind you have the thought to give everything. You know, you you have to see, I mean, what, sentient beings' needs and wants are limitless. Yeah? So it's impossible. Even you gave them everything, they would still come up with something else that they need, you know, at some later time. So uh, you give what you're capable of, Okay. And there, there's a lot of thought that has to go into giving, you know, who to give to, what time you give, how much you give, what you give, okay? So, um, you know, if you're giving to a charity, then you know many other people are giving, but you give what feels good from your heart regardless of whether other people give a lot or don't give a lot. So, you, you know, you may give $25, you may give 200 you may give 2000 depending on how, how you feel. It's a charity. They're going to get money from a lot of different people. Yeah? If it's a particular individual who has no other way to get what they need, then our bodhisattva vow says we have to give to them and help them. Okay? So you may not be able, you know, somebody comes and, you know, I owe $4,000 or I owe $40,000. And, you know, maybe you don't have that much to give, but you give what you're capable of. Okay. And you check and you make sure 
um, you know, like in that case, that somebody really has no other way of paying off the debt, and they're going to turn off the electricity tomorrow, turn off the water tomorrow, unless, you know, so you, so you check things out. What can you do if you try to give, but the other person doesn't like it or feels misunderstood? Then what to do? Yeah, then you just say, I had a good intention and I cannot control other people's minds. I mean, lots of times we try and give help to other people. Maybe not even physical help. We try and direct them in the right way and they don't want to hear it. What can you do? Yeah? I give you, I give you a gift. You don't like it. You know, it's, it's like I gave you from my heart. Can you understand that I gave because I cared about you? Yeah. And if you turn around and give it away, that's completely okay with me. Yeah. Because my main object, you know, my main purpose in giving to you is for you to know that you are valued. What you do with the object, I'm sorry if you don't like it. You know, but that everybody's entitled to their own thing. And if you want to give it away, that's fine with me. You know, and sometimes we offer to help somebody do something or we recommend them to something that we think might be helpful for them and they don't want to hear it. Yeah, what can you do? You know, are you going to lasso them and drag them, <laughs> you know, with you to? For, you know, or, you know, it's the whole thing. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make a drink. And you just have to accept it. Yeah. And say, I had a good intention. And unfortunately, that person, you know, they're not at a place right now where they can, uh, really consider what I offered that I thought would be of benefit to them. For sure. When I make those efforts to extend my help or support and they, say that I don't need it, and I get offended, then I know that the motivation was nowhere near what I thought it was. <laughs> that right. I wanted to make some inroads <laughs> into their good side, or I wanted something back from them. So yeah. when I do, when it does come from the right place, the joy of the feeling that comes is so much more important than whether it lands or not, you know? So, yeah. uh, but when I get offended, I know that that's a signal that there's right. some undermining. Yeah, because the act of giving should be the reward in itself, the joy that we feel from giving is the reward, not the thank you, not the person doing what we ask, not the person saying, oh, this object is beautiful. Yeah, it's our joy in, in, in the giving. Mm -hmm. And similarly, sometimes people will give us things that we don't like, yeah, or we don't need, and you you know you accept it because it it allows them it enables them to create merit. Yeah, so you accept what they're offering, unless it's something that is going to interfere with your keeping ethical conduct. Yeah, so there was once one of. Uh, the people at one Dharma Center where I taught, and she wanted to give me a television. And I don't want a television, yeah? Because for me, televisions are distracting, 
And I don't watch them anyway. It would just be clutter for me. And, you know, I said, please just give it to somebody else. She didn't want to give it to anybody else. She wanted to give me a television. But that one, because I felt like it involved ethical interfering with my Dharma practice, I, I held fast and I said, no, please don't do that. Yeah. But other times people give you things and, um, Okay, I have a few stories to tell here. Uh, yeah. Some, one time somebody gave me, when I was leaving Italy, one of the, the nuns there gave me a watch, her watch. She took it off and gave it to me. And I knew she doesn't have very much money. Yeah. So I said, I accept the watch and I offer it back to you. Please accept my gift. Okay, because I didn't want, I didn't feel good about keeping it because she didn't have money to replace it. Okay, another time, let me remember the details of this. So, um, Song Rinpoche had come to Los Angeles and I was uh, cooking for him, and this is previous, the previous one, and uh, we had the idea to take him to Disneyland. Yeah. And, uh, or somebody had that idea to take him to Disneyland. And so the people were talking about it and Geshe Gelson was, was there. And, uh, I, I was really broke at that time. And I said, you know, it's a wonderful idea. I'm, I'm not able to go. And then one of the other Westerners who was there said, uh, you know, I'll, I'll cover it for you. And I said, no, 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 no. And I insisted, no, no, I cannot accept it. Yeah. And then, then the topic changed. We went on to other things. Geshe Gelson later said to me, you know, you should have accepted it because it would have given him the opportunity to create merit. Yeah. So uh, there's something to be said for accepting things. Even the, one of the reasons I didn't accept it was in the back of the mi my mind, there was the hope that somebody would offer to sponsor me, you know. So there was some corruption in my motivation there, uh, which was, there was that. And then I just also felt very embarrassed. But what I did learn from that, that thing, that experience, is that when people sincerely want to help, you know, accept their offering. Yeah. And uh, as long as it doesn't interfere with your keeping your precepts or your practice of dharma or whatever, or, you know, as long as it's something that they acquired by uh, right livelihood, if they acquired it by from wrong livelihood, then it's better not to accept. Or if they insist, you take it and then you immediately give it away. Yeah. But then it's very difficult sometimes to understand what is right livelihood and wrong livelihood. I'll just end with this story because I know we're over time. Um, uh, some people wrote me, once, because in Burma, 
you know, the now Burma is totally chaotic, but before, you know, the people were, um, you know, they were they were Buddhists. They were very devout, uh, and the monks would go on pindapod. And somebody wrote and asked me, um, you know, if you're a monastic and a soldier gives you um, an offering in your alms bowl, do you accept it? Because the soldiers were, I think, at that time also harassing the Rohingya or harassing other people. So do you refuse it because they, the, what they're offering you, they acquired through long livelihood and they're harassing and harming other people? Or do you accept it because it enables those people who are creating negative karma to at least accumulate some positive karma by by putting some food in in your alms bowl. Yeah. So those that's a really difficult question. Yeah. Because generally, if if it's by wrong livelihood, you don't accept or you give it away or something like that. Yeah. But then you have to think, but this person's creating so much negative karma, maybe I should accept it because that allows them. But then I guess you could accept it and give it away to somebody else afterwards. Yeah, But those kind of things are difficult to think about. And that's going to depend a lot on your attitude, I think, your motivation. Okay.